Life Audio. Hey, Dr. Bill Sinyard here with Gospel Rant. We are about proclaiming God's love to the unlovable, to the unloved, to the unlovely. That's all of us, by the way, to one degree or another. It's the spectrum, zero to ten. We're on that spectrum. You may be a two, you may be a nine, but we're on the spectrum. So it's at this point where you men and women would be feeling or be told by well-meaning others that, you know, if you want to feel the favor of God for you to hear, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased, you just need to work harder. You need to be more faithful. You need to have more faith, whatever that means, or to pray more or lean into Jesus more, whatever that means. You should not feel unloved or unworthy. You just need to have more faith and just choose to feel loved. Again, some muscle group that I don't have. Aren't you tired of hearing that? Because that's, not, that's exactly what I'm not saying at all. In fact, I'm saying you can't do it. You're not going to do it. You're fighting your own midbrain, and your midbrain has all the powerful chemicals. You've tried. Am I right? Yeah. See, I'm saying that you're witnessing something happening to the queen the gospel of the gaze of the king that's stunning, miraculous. She is not just choosing to act differently. It's the measuring gaze of the king that has altered her persona. She is beginning to look like, yeah, and act like the king. You'll see. Movement six and seven, amazing. If you've been tracking us, the queen bride up to this point just can't seem to break out of her lack of self-worth. Her, her darkness, right, her beauty and darkness, that ambivalence, her midbrain's inner working models are just too strong, too deeply entrenched, too many insecurities, her critical inner voice too loud, too persistent, it's just programming, it's habit. But now at last something is beginning to crack, noticeably so. In fact, she's hard to recognize. Something has changed in her, grabbed her. This is who we want to be. This is how we want to feel in the gaze of God, even now pre-heaven a little or a lot. Yeah, welcome to Movement 6. That's chapter 6, verse 4 to 7, verse 10 of the Song of Songs. All right, this show is very important, the after picture of the queen. And we're going to get into this after a short word from our sponsors. We will be right back. But look around you, your family, your faith, they're not in the way. They are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung hero of her king and country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. In 1510, during the High Renaissance, an Italian painter named Giorgione painted the sleeping Venus. The goddess is naked. She's reclining graciously on a couch amidst an idyllic pastoral setting. Her left hand is covering her private parts. 
her eyes are closed and looking down and away, averted gaze. So many, it's a classic, so many young artists for hundreds of years after that copied the sleeping Venus to learn the skills of their trade, particularly acceptable, culturally acceptable nudes. It was so familiar to the art community. Well, avant-garde, impressionistic painter, Edward Manet, using the sleeping Venus as his template, wanted to accomplish something different, something provocative, something that would capture the attention of his new audience. Olympia was first exhibited in the 1865 Paris Salon and caused such a furor, the painting had to be moved to avoid a riot. Well, what's the problem? Well, gone is this glowing, ethereal beauty of a distant, unapproachable, perfect goddess in her mythical pastoral home and setting. And in her place was a real, in-your-face, naked lady with many details in the portrait clearly signifying her as a common prostitute. I mean, you see the statement he's making. There was orchid in her hair, jewelry such as bracelets and earrings, and a a black ribbon provocatively around her neck, and she's laying on an oriental shawl. All of these things are symbols of sensuality. And her name, Olympia, is also associated with prostitution in the 1860s Paris. But none of that is what upset or unsettled the French audience so much. In the painting, Olympia is confrontationally gazing directly at you as if you were her client. You were coming to pay her for her services. See, it was her gaze. You with me? It's a brain thing. Uh, One scientific study in 2018, perception of direct versus averted gaze in portrait paintings, uh, said this. They noted that an image that has a direct versus averted gaze elicits increased activation in multiple parts of your brain, commensurate with them having an actual experience of being with a real person. So you're looking at the painting, but because it's a direct view, you almost feel like you're having an interaction with a a real person. Same thing in poetry, right, in the Song of Songs. You feel like you're having an interaction with the queen because she's looking directly at the audience, the king, but, but me. And vice versa, the king's gaze looking at her directly is looking at me. It causes us, the readers, to sync with the painted subject's mental and emotional state, and we respond to it. So the researchers found that people spent more time observing and studying the portraits, kind of lingering with them, of the ones where the subject looked directly at them. It becomes personal. It actually becomes transformative. There's another study, direct gaze versus averted gaze, quote, signals to an individual that they are in the focus of another's attention, and that produces similar brain activation as hearing one's name. I mean, you're connected. You know, you hear your name and you look back. Well, it's, you're there. It's personal. Individuals report feeling more self-aware after seeing direct as opposed to averted gaze, close quote. So in so many cases, the gaze is what pulls us in and grips the viewer. The subject's eyes are what makes the viewer feel something. So I I see the painting, I read the book, I, I read the poem. So the way that the artist chooses to capture the gaze dramatically changes how I perceive the work, the art, the how I perceive the person depicted in the portrait, and how. I feel related to that person. 
look, so Mona Lisa, it's directly at you. Would, the, would she have been the icon she is today if, if her gaze was averted? Many experts think not. So choosing where the subject looks is a powerful way for an artist to shape the observer's interpretation of a piece. The gaze attributes identity to the object of the gaze. So uh, Mona Lisa's gaze attributes identity to me. Uh, Olympia attributes identity to me. I'm a John, right? Uh, So uh, philosopher Jacques Lacan popularized the concept of the gaze. It's all about identity to him. What is it that makes us who we are, makes us feel like who we are? How do, how do I know what my name really is, what my identity is? How do I know if I'm good? How do I know if I'm good-looking or smart or attractive? Well, we know these things based upon the reaction of others, their gaze to us. It's a reaction outside of ourselves that tells us who we actually are. So Lacan says that we start off with a hollow identity, kind of an empty cup, and our identity is filled by other people gazing at us or how they gaze at us. Do they look at us directly? Do they avert their gaze? How do they respond? What do they say about us? How do they interact physically? Our sense, is, our sense of self is a power that comes from outside of ourself. It's not just how people see us. It's how we see people seeing us, how we interpret how people see us. That's the gaze. We see how others are seeing us, and we interpret that. Uh, Here's Old Testament scholar Carlene Mandolfo. As a human being, I'm finished by others. I have no independent identity apart from the gaze of others. Right, so think about it. How do you know who you are? Family told you who you are. When you were young, that's good or bad. They may have done it uh, implicitly, right? If the family didn't pay any attention to you, if they were absent, if they abandoned you, that tells you a little bit about, because their gaze was very averted. Your father told you who you were. Your mother told you who you were. Your friends, uh, spouse, if you're married, your kids regularly tell you who they are, who you are based upon social media as well. And you can fight it all you want, but all of those gazes shape us. Well, What does God feel about you? Well, it depends upon the gaze, how you're experiencing his direct gaze. Or do you feel it's averted because you're uh, shameful, you're a disappointment? Your prefrontal cortex says that God loves you, but your midbrain is a function of your interpretation of God's gaze. And if you think he's a disappointment, that's going to affect your identity and your relationship with him. Yeah, it just makes sense, right? So as we read Movement 6, we want to ask the question, uh, are are we looking at a direct or averted gaze? And what does it tell us about her identity, the queen's, his, the king, because they're looking at each other and looking at us secondarily? What can we say about his gaze in return to her? What changes are observable based upon the gaze, his to her and her to his? (laughs) Sounds complicated, but we're going to look at the gaze. In the end, though, how will she interpret how the king sees her? How is that going to fill her empty cup? Who is she in his gaze, right? And ultimately, who is she? All right. I'm going to give you time to pause. We're going to take a break from our sponsors, and we will be right back and get into movement number six. See ya. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. 
Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Movement 6. The king's gaze, we're going to see it as direct as it could possibly be to her. Disconcertedly direct. Almost painfully direct. And how do I know? Uh, It's poetically an inclusio. In the first verse, four, he says that she is intimidating to gaze upon. Her eyes. He says, you're beautiful, my darling, as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome, the word is a yom. It can mean terrifying, breathtaking, intimidating, awesome to gaze upon, Dagal. Turn your eyes away from me. They overwhelm me. They <laughs> frighten me. You get the picture. This is as direct as can be, and there's a response. There is emotion. He repeats himself in verse 10. That's the inclusio. Her eyes as she, He looks directly at her eyes, which seems to be new, and it makes sense, right? Because probably up to this point, her her gaze has been averted, her insecurities. But as he looks directly at her eyes, and obviously, we're to understand that she is looking fearlessly directly into his, that gaze, her gaze of his, overwhelm him, unsettle him, takes his breath away, moves him. And he's going to try to put it in words, but we're to imagine his face as he tries to hold his gaze, even though it terrifies him. This ayom is a strong Hebrew word, ayom. It most often uh, happens in the realm of God or royalty or, or fierce animals, characters that need to be respected for the danger they may cause you if you aren't careful. I mean, you've got to be careful looking at the eyes of God, right? It can refer to judgment. Uh, you know, if, if, God, if you sin against God or the king, it's going to result in a yom, a fear, a fright, a terror, right? You're going to run. When God sends out a yom, nations are scattered in fear and confusion. And here's the synonyms. Uncontrollable terror, fear, dread, trembling, melting away. Being in the presence of a snorting wild horse. Job 39, verse 20. It's a sense of being in danger. <laughs> it's never ever linked with gazing at someone so beautiful other than here. This is just a wild, out-of-place, strong word. So hers, he sees, is this innate kingly glory that unnerves him, and he's the king. 
Uh, Degal, this word to gaze upon. I don't know where most Bibles come up with troops with banners. It's to gaze upon, to look upon. It's, it's just a repeat of verse 9 where Degal is translated outstanding. Uh, Rahav, the word, your eyes overwhelm me. Again, a strong word. They assail me. They harry me. They press me. They alarm me. They awe. They uh, disturb me. They confuse me. <laughs> He's, his reaction to her gaze is stunning. Such emotion, such visceral feeling. Listen, you've probably felt that a little bit before, right? But how would you feel if someone you love said they were so emotionally and physically moved by your glory, manifested by your eyes? Your gaze took their breath away. Definitely better than entering a room and nobody noticing you're there. This time you enter the room and people notice. They stand up. How would you feel hearing that God adores you and I so much that he is moved by the reflection of his glory in your eyes. See, we know we are to be aware of God's glory when we enter his room, but our eyes reflect his glory, and so we're glorious and need to be dealt with as well, not innately because we reflect his glory. And then he shifts to a wasp of her face. This is the frame for her eyes, for her gaze. It's perfect, does not distract He says, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Uh, Look, I'll try to interpret. It could be charcoal black color of Syrian goats or the slow flowing swirl of herds of goats descending down the many goat trails on Mount Gilead in the cool of the evening. Verse 6, your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twins, uh, not one of them alone. Look, at an age of no dentistry, she has all of her teeth and they're all white. It's a beautiful thing. Nothing's distracting from her eyes. The temples behind your veil are like halves of pomegranates, even veiled. You see her eyes. Magnificent. Her makeup only accentuates her eyes, her gaze. Sixty queens there may be, eighty concubines and virgins beyond numbers, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. You know what? The eyes. There's no one like her. No other woman, royal or not. She's definitely a queen above queens. Verse 10. Who is this that looks down like the first light of the morning? Beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome or intimidating to gaze upon. So the idea is that she's on this pillar, if you will, a throne, and the light that her eyes are shining that's coming out from her eyes, the energy is like the first light of dawn or uh, the sun or the moon. Well, as he stares at her face, it feels like she's higher than, than he is. That's the gaze. Her glory looks down upon creation. Right, The very sun, her gaze is awesome to gaze upon. <laughs> and that's you, Jesus follower. Have you ever heard that? I know that, not kind of the humble view of Christianity. The, but yeah, you're reflecting God. Holy Spirit is in you. He thinks so, otherwise he wouldn't pay attention to you. And I know you haven't been treated that way by others. Again, when you enter a room, people should stand and respect your presence. They should go, oh, he's here, oh, she's here. Like the bride entering a wedding, we all stand, and we've just lost that. We don't treat people that way. The point, movement six begins with the gaze, a very powerful one. The king is gazing at the queen, 
in a way that is almost uncomfortable for we readers. It's personal and intimate movement. He's clearly looking directly at her eyes. She's directly looking into his. It's the first time we see this direct gaze in the Song of Songs. So much so that he feels like he must look away. That's the power of the gaze. That's a healthy gaze, entrancing gaze. It has an unnerving power over the partner. She couldn't before. She was had averted gazes. We get that, right? In the parallel movement, too, she, she and her eyes are hidden behind the lattice, remember? And this would be equivalent to an averted gaze. It might reflect her insecurities, her timidity, her fears of looking into the king's eyes and seeing disappointment, rejection, or anger, whatever. He, he makes his eyes see her, is what the Hebrew says, shagah. He's peering into the lattice, but there's no notice of or no comment on her return gaze. It's not there. She's not ready. It would seem that she is now. But now her gaze has been rebirthed. It's fired up. She's someone now. So what are we learning from this dyadic gaze, this twofold gaze, his to her and her to him? It's not that she is funnier or more educated or taller or shorter. She's become a queen. Something has happened. She is now a partner in the relationship, an equal, I mean, humanly speaking, right? She's not God. She's a partner in this. And how? It was his direct gaze all along that transformed her, filled her empty cup over and over again. Lacanan. She can now look up into his eyes and wants to, and is comfortable to do it, and, and see his gazing directly back. Her new character has a glory that is unnerving to the king. Her gaze takes his breath away. His gaze took hers away. Now it's mutual. She had to finally look up. And by the way, in, in the, the later chapter, she's going to say that one glance of his eyes, she's going uh, to make that the thing that actually changed her. You know, I know so many Christians who just can't look up into Jesus' eyes. You know? Do you know what I mean? <sighs> How can I imagine this to us? Paul in Ephesians speaks of the character and glory of Jesus. Just listen and let your breath be taken away by his gaze. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him. So think of him saying, so you may look directly into his eyes. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's how you do it. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the workings of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in any way. And his eyes are disturbing to gaze upon and wonderful. You see, it's another way of characterizing this. Or remember Isaiah, Isaiah 6, when he sees God on his throne and he says, woe to me. There it is. There's that terror to look upon the eyes of God. Humanly speaking, I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord God Almighty. And he averts his eyes. Well, the queen is not the king, but is reflecting the king now so much that even he is unnerved, poetically speaking. 
He's stunned, poetically speaking, and his breath is taken away. Do you know what I mean? All right, I'm going to get into some trouble here, but so be it. I'm going to toss it out there. Consider the experience of glory, worth, spectrum, the, the gaze of your eyes from zero to ten. Zero would be the most insecure, humiliated, ashamed, guilt-ridden person on the planet. So many Christians, right? Ten would be the, the, the gaze of Jesus, the radiance of glory and confidence and substance and worth and value, personhood, experience. And, and by the way, it was exuded by Adam and Eve before the fall, humanly speaking, right? Uh, very little is innate glory. They weren't born with it, right? It's a reflection of the glory of God, of God's innate glory. Isaiah felt his guilt and shame in the presence of God's radiance. Adam and Eve didn't. They walked with God in the garden. They didn't fall to their face every time they they saw God. There was no sin, no shame, no guilt, no fear. And, And I'm not saying they were equal to God in any way, substantively or any other way. They were always an image bearer who reflected his glory. Well, post-fall, we lost the ability to reflect his glory. We can't look directly into people's gaze anymore. We can't look certainly not into God's unaverted without being consumed by guilt and fear, shame. We also lost the spirit at the fall. I assume indwelt temporarily Adam and Eve, but now we can be indwelt by the spirit. We can begin to gaze into God's gaze as the spirit intentionally empowers us to reflect that gaze, to feel less guilt and shame since Jesus paid for it. That's the uncluttered gospel. We can at moments be filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians 3, and even glance upward, averted gaze, still no doubt a little into the face of God, but less and less as we approach heaven, humanly speaking. So on our spectrum, the king of England, in all of his glory, you know, if zero is nothing, then he might be a three. Uh, the most wealthy business person or, or uh, athlete, maybe 2.5. We can at moments experience far more through the work of the Spirit in us. We can begin to experience a little or a lot, the sense of value and glory and, and honor it's the gaze. We can access that through the Holy Spirit. So if you heard this and scoffed at the idea or demurred and came up with dry as toast theological reasons why this can't be, I'm going to suggest, no judgment, that right now you're living in movement too. You're the queen, brides, yet still hid behind a protective lattice. You're averting your gaze. Um, you're scared. I know so many Christians who are good with God loving Israel that much or God loving the church that much, but not them. They've messed up. They're not, they've, they've had bad things done to them. They've done bad things. They haven't been faithful enough. They're impure. They haven't lived up to Jesus' expectations. So I, I can't look up. I can't have a direct gaze, right? Well, no worries. The step forward for you is the same. It's not choosing to try harder to gaze. It's to depend upon the lover and his gaze, asking for God's source power so that you could look in the eyes of the, the lover. That's the simple and cluttered gospel. And listen, let it wash over you again. Let it seep in. We're trying to undermine that residual lattice work that's averting your eyes. Uh, and by the way, make sure you say the simple and cluttered gospel aloud twice a day, 45 days. We're fighting habit with power. Here it is. Jesus' followers, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, 
I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? How do you experience his gaze more now? How do you experience your gaze towards him now? Simple good news. There is something you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the spirit inside of you to make you know, experience and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. Well, next time we're going to wrap up Movement 6 and maybe get into Movement 7. My first book, a must-read on the Song of Songs, Kiss of God, is available on Amazon. The novella is available on Amazon. And I'm writing a new updated book, but uh, I'm now shifting to finish a book on overlooked and underappreciated women in the Old Testament. It's fascinating, lots of fun, lots of great new stuff. I think you'll be encouraged, particularly for you women. If you want to be... Uh, on the lookout when this will be published, put uh, send a request, bill at gospel-app.com and just say, I want to know more about the Old Testament book. Please, I'm begging you to get the word out about this podcast series. It's for underachieving Christians who are frustrated with their Christian experience. They're averting their eyes and they're just not getting it, right? The Song of Songs is core for this. God is not disappointed in you. Jesus purchased this, right? And if you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, it's all because of Jesus. Your ears have been so stopped up by other voices. Let's fix that. No doubt the Spirit has just brought someone to mind that that could just use this. Well, you know what to do. Send them a link, forward it, put it on your social media, have coffee with them and let them know. And another favor, please, I know this is... Uh, it's not that hard, actually, but please follow this podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, just check follow. Very important. Listen, if there are a thousand people who followed or commented on this show, bill at gospel-app.com, would you be surprised how many more people would listen to it? You're helping me get this message of God's love for the unlovable out there. Thanks to lifeaudio.com for their support. Take heart, child of God. Hey there, it's Nicole Eunice from the How to Study the Bible podcast, and I'd love to invite you to join us as we weekly discover a passage of God's Word together. From beginning to end, from principles to practicals, we are here to make sure that God's Word is powerful and relevant to your life. If that sounds like something you're looking for, I would love to invite you to subscribe. You can go to lifeaudio.com and search How to Study the Bible, and we'll see you there.